This morning's reading is taken from Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruits from a tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Thank you, Jimmy. Morning, everyone. My name is Pete Snow. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. It's good to share with you in this uh, crucial, foundational Bible passage this morning. Last time I preached on this particular passage in the Bible, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the women in the congregation gave birth two hours later, uh, uh, which is kind of apt given that it mentions her Eve and her childbearing and stuff. So I just wanted to warn you. (laughs) Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning uh, in all sorts of states of mind, joy and trouble and despair, with, with many things weighing on us. But we, we pray for each of us. There might be a, a blessing here in your word. We believe you're the sovereign God and you speak in your Bible. And we pray that as we look uh, and consider the world's sorrows, you might help the world to make sense to us and for us to look to Jesus. Amen. Why is life so hard? I 
I'm not really talking about the sort of modern hardships, you know, the sort of things that people tweet about. Um, my flat bike this morning is a little bit off. Something's not quite right about it. Uh, my tube train is delayed by seven minutes. Oh, life is hard. You know, uh, my Wi-Fi seems to be a bit patchy today. Life is hard. I'm, I'm not really talking about that. Let's just try and move beyond that sort of stage of Twitter hardship. And we'll get to some more significant hardships in the world. Why is it that nearly half of the world's population live in poverty on less than $2.50 a day? That's more than 3 billion people. UNICEF says that 22,000 children die each day because of poverty. So I think we can expect that in in the time that we're in church this morning, nearly 1,000 children will die because they're in poverty. I spent some time traveling in Brazil and we met a man there who lived in a, in a favela in a slum and his job that he'd got for himself was to collect plastic. So he, he, would, he lived in this tin shack with several children, big family, and he'd go out every day at the crack of dawn and he would collect plastic, like you know, empty plastic bottles, uh, bottles of pop, anything he could find that was plastic and he would load it onto this massive cart which he pushed himself and um, for every kilogram of plastic that he managed to collect, the local dump would give him five cents. It's quite hard to make a kilogram of you know, fizzy drink bottles, uh, make that up. And he'd get five cents every time he sweated and toiled enough to make five cents worth of work. I think it's not just him on this planet who grinds out an existence every day. Why is life so hard on this planet? Maybe we sometimes feel like we're grinding out an existence here in London. You know, occasionally... Occasionally, you do get home at the end of the day and you collapse into an armchair, your favourite chair, and you think, that was a fantastically satisfying day at work. Occasionally. Perhaps more often than not, we collapse into our armchair and we think, I'm glad I don't have to do that again. That particular day, I may get up and do it again tomorrow, which I'm not looking forward to, but at least I don't have to do those eight, twelve hours again. Christopher Hitchens, you know, the famous atheist who's outspoken about his lack of belief in God, he wrote the book, God is Not Great. He wrote an article in Vanity Fair when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he, he, he was pretty honest and open about his struggles with this. You know, I've spent my whole life giving this philosophy of atheism. And, and now I'm wondering, why me? Why has the cancer got me out of all the billions of people in the world? And he said he could almost hear the cosmos answering back, why not you? I don't care. That's one answer to the, the answer to the question, why is life so hard? Well, why not you? Suffering wins in the end. Death is the bottom line. The house always wins. Why not you? Why should the universe care? But I do care. Do you not care? I care about these things. There's something in me which says, these things are not right. Life is hard and I care about it. As a philosopher called Blaise Pascal, famous philosopher, he said that, um, why does the man who has one eye, you know, he's got... I can't do that. What, let's choose this eye. Why does the man who's gone blind in one eye uh, say, oh, this, is, this is so frustrating? It's because he knows that there are other people walking around with two eyes. No one ever beat themselves up about not having three eyes. You know? I care about the fact that something doesn't seem to be right if I've got one eye. There's just something built into me which says the world is not the way it's supposed to be in a, in a, in a broader, more general sense. I'm, I'm frustrated about the way the planet works. And we sense that there's a normal... A shalom, a peace that perhaps was there in the beginning. I don't know where it comes from, maybe. And it's not there today. I don't experience it today. 
Why is life hard and why do I care? Genesis has got an answer for us. God has got an answer for us in his book. I just want to look with two sides of that answer with you. Uh, first of all, the world is cursed. I want to explain what that means. And second of all, the human race live, but not forever. Not the catchiest of points, but the world is cursed and the human race live, but not forever. So firstly, we'll look at how the world is cursed according to Genesis, verses 14 to 19. Just before we read it, you you might be sitting there thinking, um, aha, cursed. How incredibly old-fashioned. How this, this, this language early on in the Bible does in fact prove everything that I ever thought about Christianity and religion. Cursed, that's, that's ridiculous, that's fairy tale. It belongs in Hans Christian Andersen or something like that in a mythical land. Just observe with me as we begin. Yes, in fact, the word cursed is used. I'm not making it up. Verse 14 in our Bibles. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals comes again in verse 17. If you just turn the page over, it's the first word. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So cursed, it's here in the Bible. It's worth observing as we, as we contemplate a curse from God. Uh, it's tempting to think that's all, that's all quaint and old-fashioned. I, I think partly we, we're attuned to thinking that because we're children of the Enlightenment. By which I mean we've been so taught and conditioned to think scientifically... That is, if you want me to believe something, then you better prove it to me with empirical evidence. That has a tendency to put an emphasis on everything I can experiment on, but to shut out everything which is sort of my sense perceptions, as the philosophers would call it. Everything I can feel or intuit or that I I feel might be real, I'm not really allowed to bring to the scientific table because I can't necessarily prove it to you in an experiment. See, so we are children of the Enlightenment like that. If you go to a culture like an African culture where um, they were less affected by the Enlightenment, then they'd be much happier to talk about a curse with you. But sure, we all, we, we all sense that there's a sort of a good and an evil in the world and, and curses are operative. So it's just interesting to, to notice that that's a particularly Western objection. Perhaps if we talked in the West about the world suffering, if we, if we were prepared not to use the, world, the word curse, but we used suffering instead, it would make more sense to our Western minds. The, the planet is frustrated, partly because of choices that humanity have made, you know, our morality and the way we've gone about our business, and the planet suffers. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I, I, I do kind of believe that. Um, just maybe the, the, the enlightenment problem I have with the word curse. Of course... Um, There is a content of what we mean by curse, which we'll explore in the next few verses, verses 14 to 19. Mankind chose badly, and now the planet suffers. Just before we get there, try and illustrate this. Uh, I grew up near Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire, which is a famous um, estate of the English nobility, and it was owned by the Duke of Marlborough. I think we've got a picture of him here. And uh, the 11th Duke of Marlborough was uh, the the seat where he lived, Blenheim Palace. He's the one on the left. And this is his son on the right. Um, the, the 12th Duke of Marlborough, I think he is, Jamie Blandford. He was the Marquess of Blandford. He inherited that title. Those pictures were taken by the same photographer, a man called Alan Warren. And you might be able to just sense a, a difference in image between the two of them, the traditional Duke on the left and the slightly obstreperous, rebellious younger son. That was borne out in, in the way the younger son grew up. The Marquess of Blandford grew up with a reputation for, um, I forget the way they phrased it in the nobility. Oh, excessive behavior. That was it. So he had a well-publicized drug addiction. He was jailed twice, once for dangerous driving and road rage. Um, They knew him as Smokey Blandford in the press because he was 
was smoking something. Uh, in 1994, the, 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 the duke on the left took the son to court to make sure he couldn't inherit the estate. So you see, if you, if you make bad choices, heir, in your life, it does affect the estate. The, the estate will suffer, and the current owner is willing to take action to prevent further suffering. In our passage this morning, God turns to each of the main players on his estate that he was planning on giving responsibilities to, and he said, I'm going to take action here to prevent further suffering, and it's going to be a punishment to you. So he turns to the, the, the snake, and then to the woman, and then to the man, which is also the order of appearance earlier in the chapter. Firstly then, he says to Satan, you're going to eat dust and fight humanity, verses 14 to 15. Let's have a look. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It seems here, when you agree, that, that God is referring not just to the snake as in the biological animal, although that seems to be there because he's crawling on his belly and eating dust, but there's also something about Satan who has embodied the snake in this chapter, the dark power in the world. It, the two seem to come together in here. So God has got both the snake and Satan in view. And there seems to be this long-standing battle that's initiated here between the, the snake, the sons of the devil, as Jesus would call them, and humanity, sons of Eve, godly sons. And that, that will come to a, a head, if you'll excuse the pun, when um, the, the godly one, once and for all, crushes the head of the snake. Now we'll come back to that, because this verse is kind of a, a big and beautiful deal in the course of the Bible. It might just be good for us at this stage, though, to, to, to notice, if there are any of us who are troubled by Satan, troubled by the idea of Satan or the power of Satan, to observe that although he can trouble us, God is the judge here. God is the one who turns to the snake and, and meets out the sentence and is the one in charge and is overall responsible for the estate. I hope that's some kind of comfort to us as God humbles the, the snake into the dust and pronounces a sentence on him. Satan is on a leash and it won't last forever. Notice just as well with the snake, how the punishment fits the crime. You want, to be, you want to be in league with the humans, Satan? You want to talk to them behind my back? You go ahead. You have a, you're going to have a role which makes them hate you as their accuser. So the punishment sort of fits the crime there. He's going to go on talking to them, and it'll be a battle. As we've got to move on. Um, we'll talk about the woman who, to whom God says, you will have pain in labor, and you will fight your husband. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The woman and the man aren't actually cursed in this chapter. The snake gets cursed, and the ground gets cursed. The woman and the man don't get cursed. The role of the ancient woman was to be in the home, and the, the, the role of the ancient man was to be out working in the field. So I think we see a reflection of that here. We, we might perceive there's a bit more crossover in the modern world in which we live. But presumably labor was a cinch before this. So a woman could have just given birth. Aha, I have a baby. Uh, but Eve hadn't had her first child by this point. Interestingly though, marriage from here on in is, is warped. It's changed. Did you spot that in verse 16, the second half? 
Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's a bit mysterious, isn't it? Your desire will be for your husband. What does that mean? I think the way they're paralleled here in this verse, you get two references to pain and pain, and then you get two references to, then first of all, desire and then ruling. I think we're therefore to understand that this is a desire to rule, a desire to dominate, a desire for the wife to be on top in the marriage. And it instigates a battle of the sexes in that way. Of course, if you flip that around, what you see is the, the godly pattern for marriage. The design of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2 for human beings to serve one another. And when in a very intimate relationship in marriage, that, that is at its most beautiful. Which is one of the reasons we want to do a marriage refresher to encourage one another to do that. When you don't have one another serving, you have competition. And then he turns to that man and he says, you will eat by the sweat of your brow and you will fight death. Notice just in verses 17 to 19 how many times he does mention eating. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since uh, from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. We saw in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that work is a blessing. God is a worker God, and therefore work is still a blessing. But here work just gets a whole lot harder. Adam, I'm going to put you in the field, but it's going to be really hard. You're going to have to sweat to get your meals on the table. The woman was actually consigned to painful labor and the man was consigned to painful labor. Just of a different sort, of a toiling sort. You know the winter months in London? They do sort of accentuate the hardness of work, don't they? The the daily grind. When you get on the tube with people and you all silently shuffle in, you stand on the platform, the doors open and you shuffle onto the train, you you stand there for a couple of minutes together (laughs) silently looking at the dark tunnel and then you shuffle out again. I mean, that, you, you just accentuate the winter months, the, the grinding nature of toiling by the sweat of my gra- brow to put food on the table. And we are considered the lucky fraction of the world's population who actually get some choice in what our careers are. Fancy the daily grind, which doesn't involve tube, tube tunnels, but does in, involve tending your crops, the agrarian economy where this was first intended for. When I was at Oak Hill College training for, for ministry, uh, there, was, there were a few allotments that they gave any of the students who wanted them. And I, and I put my hand up. I was like, oh, that sounds like a, a diversion from the academic stuff. I'll, uh, I'll take it on. And there's this tiny patch of ground, you know, two meters by two meters. And uh, a few of us got to tend it in the course of our studies there. And uh, a bit of me loved it. You know, it's fantastic. You, you, you do some heavy thinking and then a coffee break or at lunch break, you go out there, you get dirt under your fingernails, you dig holes, plant things in the ground. I would, I'd be reading about how to plant and how to keep off the pests and all that sort of thing and try and grow a crop. I loved it. I'd go down there late at night checking for slugs and picking them off. Um, when the caterpillars appeared, I'd do everything I could to try and keep off the caterpillars with nets and things and everything. In July, so I worked all the way through from about... February, March, all the way through to July, I got a crop. I got this crop, actually. I think we've got a picture of it just here. My first ever crop. Now, at the one level, I'm hoping you're impressed. Um, (laughs) I've got some lettuce, some carrots, some beans, a rather oversized 
oversized courgette and about 10 raspberries. The trouble was I worked for five months to get that. And by the time you divided out 10 raspberries between your family, I mean, no one's that impressed anymore. You know, they're, they're, they're still hungry. By the sweat of your brow, God says, you will eat food from the ground. It's still a blessing. All the creational things I'm giving you, they're still gifts. But boy, you're going to toil over it. How much more fretful is this situation if it's not just a hobby? Not something you do in a coffee break as a diversion. If it's your family's life. If this is, as it has been down the millennia, everything I need to survive, which is suddenly difficult. Yeah, that makes me fret. That makes me worried. Do you see how this does help us view the world that we see in front of us? Soil isn't just hard, it's cursed. I think sometimes we do well to use the language that the Bible uses rather than just the language that the world around us uses. It is cursed. Sometimes culture is prone to exaggeration. You know, everything is awesome or um, this is the worst day of my life when actually it's just that the tube turned up a little bit late. Sometimes we over-exaggerate. I think here is one instance where we under-exaggerate, if that's a phrase. You know, this, the planet really is cursed. God tells us here in black and white. And one of the resources God gives us to explain our experience of daily life is accurate language and a a real diagnosis of what we're actually suffering from here. The soil is cursed. However, one question may have occurred to you. uh, why, Why did God make it that way? I mean... This is Genesis chapter 3. We're not very far in. Why did God bring the snake into the garden? Why, or, or another way of phrasing it, why is there evil in the world if God is all the things that we say he is? I think that's a good question. Let me just try and um, address it because it cuts right to the heart of lots of life and, in fact, the Bible and Christianity. I need to warn you, of course, that I, I can't do justice to that question. It's so deep and heart-wrenching and there's so much pain involved. I wish I could write you a little postcard, you know, uh, this is the answer to pain and suffering and evil in the universe, and I could hand it to you on the way out of church this morning. You'd all leave here happy and smiling. The Bible doesn't give us a, a, a neat, dense answer like that. But God does give us two incredible truths to hold on to about himself, and we've already had them in Genesis. You don't even have to read very far in the Bible to get them. Incidentally, while I was thinking about this this week, just before I tell you the truth, I was very prone to remembering Michael Jackson's Earth song. Do you, I mean, sorry, this is a bit odd, but do you remember Michael Jackson's Earth song? It's a slightly odd song. Once you've got the chorus in your head, it's very hard to get it out of your head. And there was this odd video where Mike J- Jacko, in all his eccentricity, was, was battered by a storm, and he was holding onto these two trees, and he was sort of getting battered by the storm, but he held hold firm to those two trees. Let me just try and use that as a, as a lens. As long as you hold on to these, these two truths, these two trees, as you get battered by the storm of suffering and evil in the world, I think the Christian has an answer. Okay, firstly, first tree, God is all good. If we're being fair to the narrative in Genesis, this is true, isn't it? I mean, you think back to Genesis 1. He created it. And what was it? Oh, it was good. Day 1. It was good. Day 2. It was good, 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 good. Very good. 
So the God who is good creates things which are, surprise, surprise, good. Genesis chapter 2, he creates a garden which is full of beautiful fruit and the ground is stacked with jewels. And he gives good commands and freedom to the people he puts in the garden. So I think, wouldn't you say, if we're being fair to the story so far, God does seem to be good. He's all good. If we read on in the Bible, we'd read statements which actually just put that in writing for us. Psalm 145 verse 7, uh, God is good. On the lips of Jesus, Mark 10 verse 18, God is good. So God is all good. And if he's all good, you see the implication, then he is opposed to evil in the world. It's not like he's just, uh, you know, he secretly enjoys evil. He is opposed to it. He's all good. And then the second tree to hang on to, God is all powerful. All powerful. So remember Genesis chapter 1, same again, we've already seen this in the story. What does God do when he wants to create a universe? Aha, I think I'll create a universe. He speaks it into being and there it is. That, that's the, the mark of an all-powerful God. Similar hint we get in, in Genesis 3. When evil needs to be punished in the world, God is in the driving seat. He's addressing evil. He's doing something about it. The darkest force of evil in the world can't thwart God. So I think, again, if we're being fair to the narrative, we see a God who is all-powerful. And if we read on in the Bible, we'd read statements about that as well. That means, you see the implication of that? He's capable of eradicating evil. So he's all good. He's all powerful. Why then is there evil in the world as I'm battered by this storm? It's at that point I have to leave you. And the Bible leaves us without all the answers in this life. But perhaps that's an echo of what it means to be human. We're not God. There is one more thing that he tells us about eradicating evil, but we'll come back to that. So the world is cursed. I feel the, the weight of that this morning. I came here. It was my job to tell you the world is cursed. But I think we need to think about that accurately. And the second thing I want us just to see in our time together is that hum, the human race live, but not forever. Verses 20 to 24. I'm going to read this. I just want you to observe, if you will, that there's an emphasis on life. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve. And the footnote tells us Eve probably means living because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And he drove the man out and he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life see how there's good and bad in these verses the human race live on there's a future for Adam and Eve they're not just smashed but they don't live forever first of all let's just observe the the, the glimmers of light that you get here the, the good bits which I think Adam would have been clinging on to and Eve as they talk together walking east which I think we're supposed to cling on to the glimmers of light first of all Eve's called the mother of all the living I mean, Adam has had a bad track record so far in this chapter. He hasn't covered himself in glory. He kind of abdicated all his responsibility, and then he tried to blame anyone else but himself. But here, I think this is an act of faith on Adam's part. It's his job so far in the Bible to name things. And he says, I'm going to call you, my love, my dear, the mother of all the living, because I can see life coming from you in some way. So that's the first glimmer of light, Eve's name. Second glimmer of light, there are garments of skin. Presumably animal skin. You know, God takes animals 
And they have to die their sacrifice so that Adam and Eve, even though they did wrong, could be clothed. I think there's some sort of glimmer of light there which is supposed to shine further on into the Bible and remind us of animal sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, covering our shame even though we did wrong. And third glimmer of light, they're, they're sent out to work the ground in verse 23. I think that's purpose, isn't it? That's a purpose in life. You may have done wrong, you may have stuffed up, but I'm still giving you a mission and a purpose and it, and it, and it reiterates the purpose in Genesis 1 and 2. You're to take care of the world. So the human race won't live forever though. We can't avoid the fact that when Genesis chapter 3 ends, Eden is closed to business. There's a heavenly bouncer on the door, a cherubim, presumably more terrifying than we're prone to think from the Sistine Chapel. And he's got a lightsaber in his hand flashing back and forth. Adam and Eve make their own way in the world, working the ground until it swallows them up. And that's the thing about death, isn't it? It does seem to win in the end. I mean, I work and I work and I work and I work and I die. There was an ancient king I was reading about recently. And uh, he, he wanted a, a wise saying, a single sentence, he said, that he could apply to any situation in life. So we got all his wise men and his advisors and his magi together. And he said, go away, think about it, take months if you need to. But I want one sentence which applies to anything that I will ever face. Okay, and the, the wise men go away and they think about it. Months and months later, they come back and they say, we think we've got it. And there's a silence in the room and the king is all ears and they say, this too shall pass. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I kind of think they did get it. This too shall pass. You can look at the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen, but it is humbling and sobering to think, well, this too shall pass. You could be the most passionately in love you've ever been in your life but someone with good reason might even be able to say to you this too shall pass you'll either fall out of love or death will be the bottom line but you can you can not only apply it to the good things in life but to the the bad things in life when you're really struggling to get by you can look at some of the evil that's perpetrated in the world and say but this too shall pass you see so it does seem to work in every situation and yet the wise men's strap line only serves to reinforce this idea that dust I am and to dust I will return. I too will pass. But I heard a story, another story recently about a seven-year-old boy whose cousin died and the cousin was three years old and the boy was understandably asking his mum, the seven-year-old cousin was saying, where is my little cousin? Where's he gone? And the mum uh, didn't believe in God, didn't believe in an afterlife, so didn't feel she could sort of lie to her little boy. And so she chose to go with the modern secular narrative. And she said, your cousin has gone back to earth. Death is part of a natural cycle of life. So I tell you what, when you see the flowers next spring, then you can know that your cousin's life is fertilizing the flowers. Do you know what the boy did? He ran out of the room shouting, I don't want him to be fertilizer. Kind of striking, isn't it? It's just one little boy's reaction. But I think maybe it just gets at something which we all feel, which is, I get that death is real, but I care. I don't want it to be real. I'm frustrated that it's real. There is something in me, which I can't necessarily prove to you by the Enlightenment, but which says this isn't the way it's supposed to be. 
Genesis says God put that instinct in us. And not only so, he didn't just put it there and run away with his fingers in his ears, but he had a plan to put things back. And the plan revolves around Eve's offspring. I think that you need uh, to reverse a curse. If you ever get a a, a curse, I understand it needs to be reversed, and it's, it's a big deal to reverse it. Eve's offspring, we're told, one offspring in particular, will turn the curse around, he'll reverse the curse. And pages and pages later in the Bible, where the plot reaches its climax, God turns to each of the major players here in turn, and he says, I will reverse the curse, I will reverse the curse, I will reverse the curse on you. So ultimately, he turns in Jesus Christ to Satan. And that promise which we read in Genesis 3 verse 15, I will crush your head. Jesus turns to Satan and delivers the crushing blow to Satan's head from which he can't recover. Just at the moment, Satan's won. It's interesting the way it's phrased in verse 15, isn't it? He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Just at the moment, Satan sinks his fangs into the author of life. The one who he thought, if I get this one, I am, I'm done. I'm king forever. Just at the moment, he sinks his fangs, fangs into the heel of that one. His head gets crushed. And the Bible gives us to think that that's what happens at Jesus' crucifixion. So he reverses the snake's curse. Also, God turns to the to woman's curse and he reverses that curse. How? But I think he does it by, with pain, giving birth to a new humanity. With pain, Jesus Christ is the second Adam, but who nonetheless gives birth to a new human race where, where he says, we're going to do things differently. I've covered all your guilt and shame and this is a new beginning. And then he turns to the man. God turns to the man finally in the other pages of the Bible. And he says, your curse, which was to do with work and toil and the sweat of your brow, I'll wear that curse. And when they crucify Jesus, do you remember what they put on his head? They created a crown of thorns and they bound it and they pressed it into his forehead. And they hung him there in shame. And Jesus feels the weight of the man's curse pressing on him while he bleeds and he dies. I said that there was one more thing I had to tell you about the way God eradicates evil and it's this. Evil gets to the point where it thinks it's one. It swallows the one good human who's ever lived. Satan sinks his fangs into him and, it, and the grave closes on Good Friday and the last glimmer of light seems to be gone. And then Jesus just kicks a hole out the back of death. He just blows a hole in the back of it. At the very moment where it looked like evil had triumphed once and for all, and there was no answer to the problem of evil in the world, Jesus just bust out of the back of it. And it's an exit that everyone else can use as well. It's called Good Friday as we approach Easter. It's called Good Friday because it turned out God was good after all. Let's pray. Creator God, good God, all-powerful God, we, we thank you for what we read here in the Bible, even though it is sober reading for us. We pray you would help these, these truths to make sense of our daily life and what we experience in the world. And we pray, Father, as we go out into the world this week, we pray that we would look to Jesus, 
who bust a hole in the back of death, who created an exit that the rest of us could use, who shows us once and for all that our God is good and he's powerful. And we pray that in his great name. Amen.